and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Harcourt is a Sydney-based writer who works as a researcher and journalist as well as an author. After completing the Faber Academy course in 2011, Emma began writing historical fiction. The result was two novels, the first being the critically acclaimed international best-selling title The Shanghai Wife, published in 2018, and now The Brightest Star, released earlier this year by HQ Fiction. Whilst I have to confess, listeners, I haven't read The Shanghai Wife yet, I was utterly enthralled by Luna's story in The Brightest Star. As a fan of historical fiction in general, this book was a page-turning read, giving its audience insight into the plight of women in Renaissance Florence, which sadly still echoes in parts of the world today. And I'm delighted to have the chance to speak with Emma about the book in more detail on the podcast. Welcome, Emma. Oh, thank you so much, Claudine. It is just lovely to be here with you talking Aussie books. (laughs) So wonderful to have you. Now, The Brightest Star, such a clever book, Emma. Congratulations. How are you feeling about it? Oh, thank you. Look, I am so excited that it is out in the world, kind of relieved and also just filled with that nervous trepidation of, um, you know, the fact that it is out in the world and it's no longer something I can keep working on in the privacy and reassurance of my own home. Now I, you know, I've had to sort of send my book baby out into the world. So I'm thrilled and I think as my second book, having, you know, you you get a debut out there and then you have to, you know, I want to write another one, but it comes with all of that expectation and pressure that you put on yourself because now you're a published author. So to have have got over that and to be able to say that I've had two books published just is a really wonderful thing. And I feel very lucky and fortunate to be a published author in Australia at the moment, actually. Emma, can you tell me what sparked your desire to write about a young woman in 15th century Italy? Was Luna's story based on a real historical figure? Look, um, I love Italy. I've always loved Italy. I spent some time in Florence when I finished high school. So I had this connection to my own younger self when I was just growing up and becoming a an adult. And I just had the most fantastic time. Like I turned 19 in Florence in the late 1980s. I was studying Italian language and I met all these amazing people and It's just such a beautiful, beautiful city. And when I was thinking about what to write for my second book, I wanted to set it in Italy, in Florence. But the actual story of Luna is completely fictionalised, except that when I started to look into that period of time, the Renaissance, and I started to do some research, I came across a small group of extraordinary women of the day who were actually really intelligent and were writing and debating and speaking in public, but were struggling as individuals and as women were not given any opportunity to pursue that once they'd hit the age of puberty and when they were expected to get married. The more I read about it and the the more I was completely shocked that I didn't know anything about any of these people. I'd never heard about these women. And obviously I'm not a historian expert in the Renaissance Florence, hopefully a bit more so now that I've I've written the book about it. But at the time I was like, how on earth did these poor women survive? And what extraordinary forgotten stories there's are. So that's where it began. So for readers out there who haven't read The Brightest Star yet, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about the story. 
Sure. So the book is set in Florence in the late 1400s when the religious leader Savonarola was the most, the strongest political force in Florence. It was the Medici's had been exiled. So it was this really small window when it was very, the city was held sort of in a religious lockdown. The Bonfire of the Vanities happened around this time. And my main character, Leonardo Lunetta, who is called Luna for short, is this really feisty young woman who is intelligent and curious and has a close relationship with her father and wants to be an astronomer. So she loves the stars. She loves going stargazing with her father at night. And she wants to learn more about that. And her father has educated her as a young girl, as some of the humanists did at the time. And so she's got all this information in her head and she's really excited to pursue pursue it further and has every expectation that she'll be allowed to do that because her father has been so accommodating up until that point. But of course, at that time, women really only had two choices, which was to marry or to join a convent. And so Luna's journey is about coming up against those brick walls, having to reassess what she thinks about her family and her relationship with her father, what that means for her as a young woman in Renaissance Italy at that time, and personally how she how she manages herself and what her journey is to get through that and yeah her sort of coming of age. Mm. So it's sort of a bit of a there's a bit of romance. She comes across uh, some people who are real historical figures, but I've sort of fictionalized their involvement in the story. It's a story about a father and daughter's relationship. And it's just set in this really rich time of Italian history, the Renaissance, when there was so much wonderful art and culture and really vibrant material for me to deal with as a as a historical fiction author. I think as I said, you know, before we started recording, it, it is such a multi-layered, such a rich fabric that you've woven for us readers. It's just an incredible, there's so much going on in there, you know, and you just drop names like Botticelli and Michelangelo, the Medicis and all those wonderful places in Florence that I remember as a 19-year-old traveling, all those wonderful places that you just, you know, you'd only ever heard about or read about in books and suddenly it comes alive for you on the page. It's of, of this story. I've got to say it, it's so much fun sitting there thinking you can drop a name in like Botticelli. I mean, come on, you're sitting in Sydney in 2020, <laughs> you know, writing a book and yet your head is in the land of those sorts of artists and things was so much fun. But also this huge sense of responsibility because it's like they are real people. So you have to make sure you get it right, you know, and, and you get the historical accuracy there without it being kind of heavy handed. So the reader still feels like, like I always think, you know, the reader wants to time travel effectively and, and be dropped into that day and and that place and feel and smell the smells of the streets of, of, of Florence. So, you know, creating that is one side of the historical fiction responsibility. And the other one is because it is history, kind of, it's not fantasy, it's, it's making it feel authentic as well. But I love all of that. And yeah, being able to work with such wonderful names and characters from that period was really fantastic. Okay, so the tagline for this book is, it's a dangerous time to be a clever woman. Emma, can you tell me more about that and how this informed the story and why you wanted to explore that theme in the context of this book? Sure. It's a great question. Thank you. It's a dangerous time to be a clever woman really talks to a number of the themes in the book. 
The broad one is that um, during the Renaissance period, we think of the Renaissance as this time of enlightenment and cultural awakenings. And certainly, you know, the humanists, they did start to educate their daughters as well as their sons. But it really was a two-edged sword for, for the young women because once they hit maturity at marriageable age, which at that time was... 13, 14, and frankly, they'd already been betrothed oftentimes since they were six, five, six years old. I mean, I have daughters and the thought is just diabolical. So, you know, they they were educated alongside their brothers. They learned to, to read, to write. They were taught religious studies, the more gentle of the subjects, but nevertheless, they were kind of introduced to the possibility of their own voice and their own minds. And then once they hit marriageable age, all of that disappeared and they basically had no options at all and they had no voice. And I came across these few women, one of whom Luna talks about in the book is Otto Nogarola, who was alive in like the decades before the book is written. And she was a Veronese from Verona and she was a really bright young woman and she was educated she debated the sort of the equivalent of having intellectual conversations was writing letters and she did that and she was accepted and her father allowed her to do that and she was sort of lauded as this intelligent woman intelligent girl actually because she was still a child when she hit the marriageable age she asked if she could continue to uh, be educated and to continue in academia and she was completely pilloried for it to the point where they started rumours that she was having an incestuous affair with her brother. She was it completely demor- demolished any standing that she had. All she'd done is, is start to put the suggestion out there that she become, you know, that she continued to converse with these men and they immediately, you know, pilloried her as a immoral woman, you know, that it was all after sexual gratification. So basically she said, well, I still don't want to get married. So she became a nun. And whilst that gave her the ability, once she'd had a number of years in the convent, she was then reintroduced and allowed to re-enter all of those male areas of society because she was married to God to Christ and so suddenly as a virgin marriage to Christ she had standing and authority again she was no longer a sexual threat to these men and she was allowed to continue to read books and and learn but she spent the rest of her life in in and she called it a book-lined cell in total isolation so her choices was that in order to still be able to use her mind she had to remove herself completely from society. And so that's why it was a dangerous time to be a clever woman, specifically in the 1490s, late 1490s when my book's written, when Savonarola was in power. He was also clamping down on everything from the colours of the clothes that women could wear, any sort of adornments they had on. You know, the bonfire of the vanities was not only burning books, but it was burning works of art. It was burning gold candelabra. It was burning the wigs that they wore, the rouges that the women wore. It was all considered similar to be, you know, symbols of sexualization and impropriety amongst women. So poor old women of the time really had no options. And if you had a voice, if you wanted to have a voice, it was an impossibility and you would be sent to a convent. So that's really where that tagline came from. The reason I wanted to write about it and what became more apparent as I was writing the book was that even though so much has changed for us over these centuries, there's still, sadly, some of it still hasn't changed. The Taliban taking back over in Afghanistan happened during the writing of this book. I looked at women being forced out of universities, education being stopped, the, the abortion debate in the United States. 
whichever way you fall in that debate, it was still about a woman's right to control her choices with her own body. And kind of I had these horrible moments of realising that there was so much resonance and still so much that need that we deal with today, that a dangerous time to be a clever woman, you could apply that to certain places in the world today as well. Emma, I find that so much women's writing these days touches on this very sore point that women not only throughout history, but even today are punished for things that are beyond their control. So for example, in this story, Julia, Luna's birth mother, thought that she would be outcast by her husband or Florentine society for giving birth to a child with a deformity. Luna herself, whilst spared the weight of societal expectations to marry because of that same deformity, was shunned by society, deemed little more than the devil's spawn or an embarrassment to her father and family because she dared to speak her mind or show that she had intellect and could converse on things that were deemed only suitable for men at the time. Can you speak to me a little bit more about that? Mm, look, I suppose I haven't mentioned Luna's misshapen foot which is she's she's born with that because for me that's not who she is but at the time that was very much what defined her and I guess I was upping the ante for her in terms of the challenges that she faced but yes the very first chapter of the book is the is is her birth scene and her birth mother Julia absolutely would have been blamed for what had happened to her with the full expectation that her husband would cast her out that that she was the reason why the child the baby was not perfect and perfection was something back then which was pretty essential in terms of your family and then Luna goes on through her life with uh, a limp and she wears a, a boot that's fashioned to sort of stabilize her and give her feet an even walking pattern and she has a walking stick and all of that was considered that really was enormous judgment for her around that in society but what that gave her was a resilience and I think her personality that just said well I'm not going to let this beat me down and she lent on her father for a lot of that so you know there's this really complicated relationship with her father which is also born out of the her dependency on him and her support of him for that because it's the dad who came in Vincenzo who came in and said well actually you're not you know the mother I don't think there's any spoilers that, you know, the mother wants to get rid of the baby and Vincenzo is like, well, no, that's a fuse of you. That's my family. So we won't do that. So it's kind of a, a, a complicated relationship. But yeah, God, that poor mother, birth mother, not only are you giving birth under horrendous circumstances and she birthed a girl child, which A, is, a, you know, lesser than an heir. And then she was born with a malformed foot. She would have been terrified. Sadly, that that's the way of the day. I mean, there was an orphanage in Florence that opened the first one and it was for abandoned girl babies because, you know, they, they would do that babies who who weren't born with with any challenges simply for being born a girl so yeah it, it was a pretty horrendous time and yet you know we don't think about that stuff when we think about the renaissance I don't think because it's a you know that word has all this um, associations with beauty and enlightenment and enlightenment indeed indeed it's I know par- right it's ironic. paradoxical it sure is. It sure is. But you know what? I guess they could equally people can look back on our time and we all think we've we've come leaps and bounds. And yet, you know, maybe in another 200 years, people are going to write about us and find the same paradoxes. You've talked a little bit about this before, but not only did you choose to set this book in Renaissance Florence, but you grounded the novel in a politically dangerous time. As you said, the Medici's had been banished from Florence and anyone who was associated with them were in mortal peril. But also at a time where there seemed to be challenges to accepted thinking around astronomy and the universe. To that end, you mentioned work by 
the ancient Greeks, and also Copernicus, who himself features in the book. Can you tell me more about this and why was it important to Luna's story? Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, I just love the astronomy, but I have to say I had no idea how (laughs) much work I would have to do. Far out. Like, when I started with this idea for the book, Initially, I was, you know, I was like, well, maybe I'll make her, a, you know, a mathematician. And I was like, Emma, there's just no way you can write about a maths genius with any authority. And foolishly, I went, yeah, but I love the stars. I love, you know, constellations. Oh, let's let's go with astronomy. Oh, my gosh. It was a lot of work, a lot of really wonderful work because I love learning as I write as well. I love Sudoku and crosswords and all of that sort of stuff. And it's like finding you know it's it's like sorting out a puzzle finding all the pieces to a puzzle yes so the astronomy just seemed to fit so perfectly with the challenges that I wanted Luna to face when the book is written they think that the earth is stationary at the center of the universe and the sun and the planets that they knew about revolved around the earth it was written in the bible and to say anything against that was heresy Galileo wasn't around yet he was sort of the first one to to really stamp that with any authority. Copernicus was a really young man at the time. And in my research of astronomy, I read about his early years. He did go to Florence and he studied uh, at the university in Bologna. And he witnessed the eclipse of a star, of a star which is called an occult of a star Aldebaran in the hills of Bologna on a particular night in March. And that is an event that happens in the book down to the to the month and year and they say that that's when he was one of the things the measurements that he took during that eclipse were when he started to think about this radical theory that perhaps the sun was stationary and the earth along with the other planets rotated around the sun and he put out a really initially quite a short book about that theory and was completely pilloried and laughed out of the town and sadly his heliocentric model wasn't published until after his death so on his deathbed his assistant begged him to to let it be published so when Luna's around um Copernicus is a really young man and he's just starting to think about that theory and I thought well how wonderful that that was such a just a fundamental leap in science and in knowledge it touched on religion it touched on astronomy it it gave me the ability to empower Luna with knowledge and I sort of thought who's to say there isn't a young woman in 1400s Italy or women at the time who were intelligent were considering science were considering these challenges we just would never have heard about them. There's no way they would ever have been given a chance to have a voice or let alone to think in themselves that they had the right to talk about that stuff. And so I decided that I'd create this fictional character, Luna, and give her the ability to influence Copernicus. So really in the story, she meets Copernicus and becomes involved in in his work as well, which I just love the idea of making her that person, yeah. And so to that end, I, I, I began to wonder... How, as a writer of historical fiction, how you balance your story with real-life historical incidents and people? Yeah, it's actually really hard. It is a big challenge to be able to do make that balance work, uh, but something that's really important for me in writing the historical fiction. So when I finished the first draft of this book, I realised that I didn't really have that balance right, but then that's what a first draft is for, just to yeah. get the words out. And so I spend a lot of time looking at the detail of the history to get the accuracy there. 
what I feel is the stories that I enjoy in historical fiction are those where you get woven into this place where you you come across moments when you're like, ah, I know that name. And then you get a version of that paper cutout name as flesh and blood in the book. And I love that. So that's what I wanted to try and give readers. And, you know, I, I hope I have to a certain extent. And it's also about that creating puzzles, which I love to do. And this period of time had so many fantastic characters and they gave so much potential for plot development to my book as well. So the religious fundamentalist Girolamo Savonarola enabled me to create this really tense and escalating dark undertones in the book because of his fundamentalism and what he was cracking down on and how that bumped up against the politics of the day as well with the Medicis. And again, I love finding out about these people. So being able to sort of sprinkle the book with real life characters, I hope gives it an authenticity and being able to, for me then, to be able to turn those names into real people. I love the opportunity to do that. Copernicus, yes. Even his professor, uh, whose house in Tuscany, sort of a third of the book is set in, that really was Copernicus's professor. That really was the person he started with in Bologna. So I kind of love that. And it's like finding nuggets of gold when you, you know, you come across these these stories in in the history books. And I guess then balancing that out with the fiction side of it is really the main purpose of the book is to hopefully be a great story and to really pull readers in to Luna's journey and, you know, just to sit in that world of, in her world and forget your own for a while. You know, that's the job of fiction for me anyway. You know, that's what I love when I, when I read. That's for me is, is kind of harder than, than, you know, that's the hardest part. And the real life historical figures becoming characters it's almost like props that make that kind of a bit easier like for me anyway I wondered if your research revealed anything surprising to you were there things that you really didn't know or things that you wanted to include in the book that you weren't able to include in the book there's just so much that I could have included and you know I think that's one of the real tricks of a brilliant historical fiction writer and I'm still still learning that stuff is to not load your book up with the history, you know, to use the bits that really give something more to your story and not just put it in there because you found out something extraordinary, which, you know, is is really hard because there is so much there and I will go down research rabbit holes for days and days when really all I needed to find out was whether, you know, Renaissance houses had banisters or anything like that. So when Luna walks up the staircase in her home, I was like, oh, she's got this problem with her foot. She's got a walking stick, but she uses another contraption inside the house. But is there something she can hold on to? You know, I'm like, I had no idea. So then you become an expert on the architecture of Renaissance buildings in that time. And actually, bizarrely, the kitchen was on the top floor so that if there was, you know, the, the, the smoke could disappear and which I was very surprised by something like that. I loved the medical bits and pieces that I uncovered. So the Bezoa stones that they used, I think in the first chapter, Julia's rubbing one on her tummy to help with the birth. And then further into the book, when there's a snake bite, they use particular unctions, which involved dung. They would make rub smear over the wound, thinking that it would, would help to leach out the the snake poison, those kind of things were really fascinating and cool. 
you know, generally, I think I was just so shocked when I when I read about these women and and how imprisoned they were in their own worlds, and also how many brilliant women there were, you know, I was shocked that I'd never read the poetry of any of the Renaissance women who I came across, not only as Otto Nogarola, but the intelligence of their arguments, which tended to be around religious stuff, like I think as Otto Nogarola did this great um, debate, which was a written debate around the sins of, of Eve, you know, and you just think, gosh, that's just completely forgotten in history. And that was surprising. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I then sort of chose to bring those sorts of people into my novel. I wanted to talk a little bit about Vincenzo. He's such a contrary character, I think. I love that he wanted to give Luna an education and to that end he seemed like a forward-thinking man for his time. But as you said, I think, you know, there were there were a few men who felt it was important to, you know, educate their daughters as well as their sons. But in many ways he was a hypocrite and and, and his failed businesses gave rise to conflicting actions, particularly where Luna was concerned, didn't it? Yeah, he's an absolute hypocrite and a really typical man of the time. And frankly, you know, probably probably the one who was based on other people that I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, this side of him that's loving and the father figure and wanting to indulge his daughter. But really, ultimately, it all came down to how it reflected on him. And, you know, Luna's intelligent was, intelligence was only there to reflect his own greatness because she was only intelligent because he allowed her to be educated. And I found you know, putting his voice into the book allowed me to really show that side to him and try and understand myself how society operated back there in terms of the patriarchy and in terms of that really oppressive daily lives for women. Yeah, you know, he loves Luna and yet he cannot get beyond the social mores of the day. He, he can't get beyond the fact that he, his ar- own arrogance and his own narcissism and belief that his family and his name and his son will survive and will be the greatest. And I think also there was the, you know, you get caught up in those days, there was so much pressure around politics, you know, that the life was not private as such, you know, there was a very sense of public responsibility for all men because, you know, they were the only ones who, who were really given the authority to do that. And he struggled with all of that personally, you know, having to meet the the needs of his family as well as the needs of his guild. So he was a wool merchant and at that time silk had just started to be imported and so his business was starting to flounder and he built that up himself so sort of a self-made man, which was one of the great things people say about the Renaissance is that, you know, you could you could come up from uh, from nowhere and make yourself, of course, only if you're a man. And, um, and also a lot of those houses then completely disappeared because of things like this, that the, the changing dynamics of the economy. And he was really deluded. And he was a mean person, ultimately, you know, it's that it's that sort of push people down and rebuild them in your own mold, you know, so so his his second wife. Lucrezia was that you know women didn't have the option of challenging that you just had to make it work you just had to to keep going and I I hope I hope I've showed that a bit in her character in the dynamic with Luna and her sister who was you know the one who was beautiful and was set up to be married to make family uh, connections great connections for the family and bring wealth to the family and ultimately it all fell on Vincenzo's head and ultimately you know, he got his comeuppance. Certainly did. I mean, you know what? I always think the Shanghai wife 
also one of the underpinning idea themes of that book was the father-daughter relationship. So I think, you know, as an, or like I write historical fiction, but you can't help but have some of your own experiences. That's all imbued into the book. And so I think I'm always looking at that relationship because of the relationship I had with my father and, you know, my poor mum, who's wonderful and is one of my, is my biggest supporter. I was thinking, I've got to write a book that's really about the mother. Because, but actually that's because I have, you know, the relationship that challenged me was the one with my father and the one that I'm still trying to work out. He he passed away eight years ago now, but I'm still trying to work it out. Like it's still, it's all still sits in me and it never leaves you. I'm fascinated by that. And I think, I think, yeah, that's what comes through in my stories is that I, I'm really always drawing on my own relationship in that sense when it comes to the father-daughter dynamics in these books which is not something I did on purpose like I only realize that after I've written it and I think gosh Emma wow that really is something that's still dwelling in your head somewhere yeah that was a dynamic that I found very interesting in this book and I think that it it really confused Luna you know to be treated almost like an equal by her father and to be indulged so and for her intellect to be on display and for her father to be so proud of her intellect early on in her life that very same intellect was used against her later on it was such a slap in the face for her I know it's like you I want you to be intelligent I want you to have these opportunities but only you know your fundamental purpose and your future lies in being a wife and everything that that gives me back as the head of this family. Yeah, that's really confusing. And I think, you know, that that's something that still gets, happens a lot today to women. It's like you still, there's a sense that our value is in being mothers and wives. And that just eradicates everything, everything else that there is. We do have value as mothers and wives, but it's not our only value. No, you're absolutely right. We do. And um, I have you know, I'm a mother and I and I love that role and my kids are my world. There's a lot more to me and there's a lot more to all of us. And certainly in that time, it was even less, less open. And sadly for Luna, you know, thinking that at least she had a way out because she did have this malformed foot ends up not working for her anyway, because mm-hmm. of course, the idea that, you know, her father thinks that his name and is enough to, to find a good marriage for her, despite her flaws. But in actual fact, the brutality of that time was that, no, it wasn't going to be enough. Yeah. And so she's cast in the same light as every other every other young girl who has to marry or, or go to a convent. I think you might know that there are a lot of writers that listen to this podcast. And given all of your experiences to date, you two beautiful novels, do you have any tips for writers out there? You know what? I It still feels like such a privilege to be asked that question because I still feel like I'm learning and I am one of the people listening to these podcasts as well, looking for all those gems of information and knowledge and writing them down to remind myself when you sit in front of the blank page, you know, that you have to keep going. I think it absolutely is the case that you have to turn up to the page, take a deep breath and write and continue to write on a regular basis because it's like any muscle it will get better the more you do it easier to do the more you do it and then editing 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 I think one of the um, mistakes I made in my early days was thinking I'd written a wonderful novel after a first draft after a second and third draft thinking yep it's done and it's only actually after having written the second book and I know there's still so much more that I, I I still have to learn about my own process because that is something that is unique to each of us 
but is that the editing is where you can really find the gems in your writing and there's a moment that happens for me when I go back and I continue to go back and it might be as much as three quarters of the way through the book and I'll just decide I'm going to go back to that very first chapter and go through it all over again and another sweep will offer up more you know opportunities and words that I can see that I, there are better options for and that was a really wonderful moment for me actually in that particularly in that first chapter which is set you know so many years before the rest of the book it felt like almost like it was like a little short story and I think that's probably a tip is not looking at the enormity of a hundred thousand word novel looking at chapters as short stories because every chapter has to have you know, a hook at the end, every chapter has to enthrall the reader and want them to go to the next chapter, offer up some information, everything has to serve a purpose. And thinking as a finite little, not little, but you know, a finite number of pages, as opposed to a chapter within this huge book makes it more manageable, certainly made me feel like it was I could sort of tie it up with a bow in a way, which sounds silly, because nothing is ever finished. And yet, just dealing with it by chapter by chapter made it more accessible and sort of allowed me to give myself the time to work on each of those chapters. And you build up a sense of yourself as a writer and a, and a belief in yourself. And I think you need that. You need to have a really fundamental sense of, of this is where you're supposed to be. And everyone will find something, find something in themselves as a writer, if that's where you choose to be. And write what you love because you want to have fun and you want to be able to sit down every day with the page and be excited by it. Emma, are you working on something else at the moment? I am. I'm really excited because I've recently re-signed for another two books. Yay. Through HarperCollins with wonderful Joe Mackay, my publisher, who's a great supporter. I'm working on my third book, which is also historical and is going to be set in Australia. It's a colonial story in the early 1800s about a group of women who came out from Woolwich on a ship to Van Diemen's Land. And I'm so excited about that. I'm thrilled that there is just so much material available. I think coming into the earlier centuries, (laughs) closer centuries, has made the research. There's so much there. It's actually going to be harder because I've got so much to deal with, like real-life stories of the people. But I'm loving it. Yes, yes, it's going to be an Australian-focused story and it'll be out in 2020. Or I believe, actually, I'm not sure about that. But yeah, and then on to the next one as well. (laughs) Indeed, that's wonderful news. Emma, if listeners wanted to learn more about you and your books, where can they do that? The best place is to follow me on Instagram, Emma Harcourt Author, and on Facebook, Emma Harcourt Author page, and also Emma Harcourt, I'm there. So social media, I find these days, is really where I spend my time. I think my website is really out to date, out of date. So I'm not even <laughs> going to mention it. I'm mortified to say that. So I'm going to say, follow me on social media and I will say hello back because I'm just so thrilled to have people wanting to engage with my books and just engage about books as well is so much fun. Brilliant. Emma, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed The Brightest Star. It was an utterly brilliant read. And thank you so much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Oh, Claudine, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you to all your listeners. I just feel honoured to be given the opportunity to talk about my books. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinechanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.